WMNF 88.5 FM and WMNF.org. You're listening to the Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan. We have two major topics on today's show. Later on in this hour, we're going to hear from St. Petersburg Mayor Ken Welch. We'll talk about what might get built on the site of the historic gas plant district. That's where Tropicana Field sits now. We'll also hear about whether the mayor thinks that the Tampa Bay Rays will remain in St. Pete. But first up, we have a detailed conversation about education in Florida. Three weeks from today is the primary election in Florida. Some counties like Pasco and Hillsboro will vote on whether to increase taxes to pay for education. Joining us for the first part of this show to talk about this and other education issues is Jessica Vaughn. Jessica is Hillsborough County School Board member. Welcome back to WMNS Tuesday Cafe, Jessica. Thank you. You know, it's always an honor to be here. I love WMNF um, and specifically your show. I do want to say I'm on my sixth day of my second bout of COVID. So if my voice sounds a little funny, I'm still recovering, but I'm still ready to talk about education. Well, we certainly appreciate that even though you are sick, you are coming on the show. I appreciate that uh, we're, we're doing this safely and remotely. I just want to let everybody know. So but I'm really glad you can come on, Jessica. So let's first talk about the education tax that's on the ballot. You support it. So yes. why do you support it? What would it pay for? Well, <laughs> so we have an MOU, which a lot of people are saying they're concerned that it's non-binding um, legally, um, you know, and... I can't get into the legality of how binding an MOU is, but basically it's an agreement with the teachers union that 75% of the money raised for the four year millage, if it passed, would go towards supporting our teachers, making sure they have the step increases and the salary increases that they need to. And then the additional 25% would make sure that we're expanding the arts and supporting the arts, PE, music, which isn't a priority of this administration in Tallahassee when they set their educational budget and their agenda as well as our ESE students and filling in the gaps where we just honestly don't have enough funding for the things we need in schools. So what would you say to the point, maybe somebody who might oppose this tax would say, look, it's the state education, uh, the state's job to pay for education, that, that that's a Tallahassee responsibility, uh, that, that why don't, if you need more money, why don't you just get it from Tallahassee? I mean, I absolutely 100% agree that it's Tallahassee's responsibility to properly fund our traditional public schools. Unfortunately, that hasn't been their priority for over two decades. Um, ever since, you know, the Bush, uh, no child left behind, there's been an intentional um, uh intention to privatize education. And we've slowly seen our public funds shifted towards um, charter schools and vouchers, which both have uh, for, towards private schools with both have private boards that manage those education systems. So unfortunately, Tallahassee isn't pri prioritizing uh, funding traditional public education and 21 other counties have had to go out for this millage. So it's not just Hillsborough County that's saying, hey, we don't have enough funding. It's most of the counties, especially the counties in size and scope um, that are competing with us or that are our sister counties that are also saying that they're not getting enough funding. So while it's absolutely Tallahassee's responsibility, unfortunately, it's not happening. So if we prioritize public education, just like many other things when it comes to transportation, or other infrastructure decisions where Tallahassee hasn't properly funded us, we're going to have to self-fund. 
I want to remind people that our guest is Jessica Vaughn. She's a Hillsborough County School Board member. And the first topic here as we speak about education is the education tax that's on the ballot in Hillsborough County on August 23rd. That's three weeks from today in the, on the primary election. You may have already gotten your, your uh, mail-in ballot. If you requested one, you may already have it in your hands and you can uh, decide maybe based on what you hear today or, or whatever, however you want to decide, you can fill in your ballot if you live in Hillsborough County uh, and decide whether you want to support this, this tax to pay for education. Here's something that critics say. I'm reading this in the Tampa Bay Times. Um, uh, Joshua Wostall, a Republican running for Hillsborough County Commission, says our infrastructure is crumbling and their solution to the problem is to take more of the working class's money. So how would you respond to that criticism from that county commission candidate? Um, well, you know, I agree that this is a really challenging time to go and ask voters or anyone for more money and pay higher taxes. And honestly, if you had asked me when I was running for office before I really understood the complicated school budget and the lack of funding that we've gotten from Tallahassee intentionally, um, I probably would have agreed with that statement. Um, you know, but again, when the people who are in charge of setting policy and funding traditional public education won't do it, we don't have any other options. I mean, it's absolutely not something that we would want to do um, in any way, shape or form, raise or come back for more taxes. But, you know, I'm getting hundreds of emails right now from teachers in our county who are literally saying to me, I can't pay for my electric bill. I can't pay to live in the city to teach at the school that I need to. My insurance is going up. I can't pay for health care. You know, these are the people who take care of our children. And we have to prioritize and value our educators. And unfortunately, if that means that this is the only opportunity, the only way that Tallahassee has given us to fund and make sure that we can pay them what that's what it's worth, this is the position that we're forced into doing. I want to remind people that our guest is Jessica Vaughn, Hillsborough County School Board member, and you're listening to WMNF's Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canaan. It's 10:12 in the morning. If you have a question for Jessica, you can send it to us by email, dj at wmnf.org. You can also text us at 813-433-0885. Uh, Jessica, so, you know, um, when it comes to tax monies that are coming in, um, a lot of counties are perhaps getting more in tax money these days simply because property taxes are going up. So, um, th but there's a, there's a reason that you can't just use general tax revenue from the county to pay for some education issues. Can you walk us through that? Well, this is where it gets really complicated and school finance is, is made, I, I feel like it's made intentionally complicated so people can't really follow along, unfortunately. Um, in 2018, the state legislation capped how much property taxes we can recoup for education. So essentially, even though property taxes go up, all of the state property taxes go into a bucket. And if it exceeds a certain amount, we'll still get the money from the property taxes, but they take away from the per pupil funding that they give us to equal it out, to make sure that the burden isn't falling on taxpayers. So even though we will get more money from property taxes, we don't get the full amount that we would normally get when you expect your property taxes to, to fund education because the legislation has capped that and then takes the excessive money away from the other bucket that they give us for per pupil spending. And that's the thing that's very complicated. Every time we get more money in one way, they create a law or a legislation 
legislative piece that takes money away in other ways. They create an unfunded mandate or do something with transportation or allow more money to go to charter schools and vouchers. So every time we think we get a win for our general fund budget, the state finds a way to take money away from that. So it's constantly trying to balance our revenue versus our expensive with change, expenses with changing legislation. This might illustrate your point. This is another um, fact I found in the Tampa Bay Times. They said that recently the state set the local property tax rate for school districts opening operating budgets, that is operating budgets, and the rate for Hillsborough will decline by more than 8%. It was 4.3 mills roughly, and now it's about 4.0 mills roughly. Um, so that's the state determining how much Hillsborough can charge for its you know, millage rate for, for to fund its public schools. They do, and they force us to have this hearing that looks like we're raising taxes and that it's the local um, you know, school board that's doing this, and it confuses voters. They feel like we're already raising taxes, and that's kind of the message. Tallahassee continually sends out the message, we're funding schools more, we're giving teachers more money, but really what they're doing is they're taking more money away and putting in a position where people don't trust their local school boards because they're hearing one thing's in the headline, and then we're coming and saying, hey, we're being underfunded and we don't have enough money and people automatically assume it's due to mismanagement. And it creates this distrust of local school boards, which again is an intentional piece of privatizing education. Go into that a little bit more. I mean, this, this campaign about privatizing education, you're, you're saying it as if, you know, I think a few years ago, I remember hearing this was going to be the plan and it was really a surprising thing. I mean, I, they were privatizing other types of, they, you know, there were, there were efforts to privatize other types of industries. And we heard years and years ago that the next push was going to be for public education to be privatized. And it really was a very surprising idea, yet we're seeing a lot of that being implemented. So maybe if you could help our listeners understand what has happened so far and what are some of the ways that that's happening. Sure. I mean, Tallahassee has made no qualms about hiding their intention. Um, almost every piece of legislation that comes out is really to advance, again, charter schools, which, you know, there are some really great mom and pop charter schools. And then there are a lot of charter schools that are managed by pro uh by um, profit charging uh, management companies. And their whole goal is just to turn a profit and you know maximize um, the amount of money that they get for the state. So making sure that charter schools have you know, more funding, they have more support. A lot of these controversial laws that have come about, you know, that are kind of culture war laws when you talk about CRT or the don't say gay bill, they don't apply to charter schools. They don't have to have the same rules and regulations that we do. And then aside from just charter schools, which, you know, there's a whole question about whether those are actually public schools since they're managed by private board, but they get public tax dollars. Now they've expanded the vouchers, basically meaning that you can take public tax dollars to any private school that you want to, whether it's a religious, a private school, whether it's, you know, um, something that specializes, any private school that you want to, and taxpayers' public dollars are going to be able to pay your tuition for that. So, you know, in their minds, 
Traditional public schools are a drain. You have to pay teachers too much. They're hard to manage. They don't necessarily get the results that they want. So the whole goal is to privatize, you know, under this guise of parental rights, which, you know, we can have a whole conversation about parental rights and how that's been abused to kind of get parents upset. But it's really to privatize education, similar to what has done, you know, in Louisiana and other counties where your only options are going to be charter schools or using vouchers for private schools. I want to remind people that our guest is Jessica Vaughn, a Hillsborough County School Board member. We're talking about a lot of education issues. We definitely will get to parental rights later on in the show, I'm sure. Uh, right now, we're talking about the the sales tax. In the I'm sorry, the the tax increase that will be on the ballot this August, this this month, on the primary ballot in Hillsborough County. Uh, you're listening to WMNS Tuesday Cafe. We have a a, te- a email that came in from Greg. He asks, you know. Uh, what about the lottery money that was supposed to fund education? So what would you say about that, Jessica? Ah, the lottery money. Well, that was used towards school recognition money. And for the last two years, we have not gotten the lottery money. Um, Now, I've only been on the board for a year and a, a little over a year and a half, almost two years. So I can't speak to the budget previous to that and how much the lottery funded, but I know that that is no longer a revenue source for us. And they have not given us that money for the school recognition in over two years. Here's a, it's not just Hillsborough County. There's also um, a, a tax that's being considered in Pasco County for education. And here's something that happened yesterday. I'll I'll read here from the Tampa Bay Times. A Hernando County judge handed the school board a setback Friday in its effort to get a sales tax referendum before voters on November 8th. Circuit Judge Lawrence Cemento issued an order stopping the board's lawsuit that seeks to force the county commission to place the item on the ballot. Cemento said the sides did not participate in state mandated mandated negotiations before turning to the court. So it is on the ballot in Pasco County and in Hillsborough County, but in Hernando County, it looks like it's uh, not likely to be on the general election ballot. And I'm talking here about a, a tax increase to fund schools. Huh, well, that's surprising. I guess their county commission didn't support it. So that's where the impasse is. Luckily, our county commission supported that. So we were able to move forward. I would like to just take a moment to talk about it since it is going to be on the primary instead of the general. Um, I think that there's a lot of people who don't understand, especially if you're an NPA or you're an independent, that you can vote in the primary elections. A lot of people think it's only to narrow down like party affiliates, um, you know, candidates running for different parties. But if you're an NPA or an independent, there are nonpartisan races. There's a school board race, and you can vote for this millage in, in, um, in the on the August ballot. So I really encourage everybody to come out and participate, and make sure that your voice is heard and engage in our voting process, even in this primary. Yeah, I think that's worth reiterating. Traditionally, the things we pay the most attention to in the primaries are political party races. But it, it, there are there are judges in a lot of cases. There's there's referendums. There's um, school board races. So everyone everyone can vote in the primary if you're registered to vote. It's only the people who are registered for parties that have primaries that can't. You, that's the only way you can vote in a political party's primary is to be registered with that party. But anyone can vote on the other issues. I mean, I support uh, open primaries or universal primaries where we engage as many voters as possible. But unfortunately, Florida doesn't have that. But people can still engage in this election. So thank you for reiterating that. Our guest is Jessica Vaughn, a Hillsborough County School Board member. And we have an email here from... uh, 
can't tell. Oh, it's from Eric in Riverview. And uh, this harkens back to something Hillsborough voters will be familiar with when it came, came to the transportation tax. And so maybe you can clarify what will happen with the money if this tax is voted in for the school, school district. <laughs> Eric writes, if the state collects the money for the new sales tax for Hillsborough, how do we know that we'll be able to get all of the money back, especially if the state is already restricting funds? You know, that's a good question. I honestly don't believe that it goes to the state from what I've been told, you know, it goes directly from um, our county and stays within our county. Um, But I can get clarification on whether or not it has to be filtered from the state first and what that would look like. So I appreciate that question and I'll get an answer to that. Thank you for that. And I'm, I'm going to move away from specifically from this referendum question to other issues in education, unless there's something you'd like to wrap up about the, uh, the education tax and why you support it, Jessica. Well, I would just like to say, you know, just so voters know, it'll bring $146 million yearly into um, our schools that desperately need that. It's a four-year referendum. So if voters find that they feel the money isn't being spent in the way that they need to, they can make that choice not to renew it again in four years. Um, It is only for homeowners. Now, I know that there are lots of homeowners and that it gets passed on to renters and whatnot. Um, but just to give you an idea, if you have a $300,000 house um, and that's how much the value is, it's about an extra $300 a year. Um, so I know people kind of want some numbers and to understand what that would look like if they're a homeowner. So I just want to provide more details of what it would actually look like, how much it would actually cost and what that funding would do. Um, you know, we have been in a place for a while where we've had problems with our finances. And if you look back traditionally, that's because as we've been underfunded since 2009 is when they rolled back our per pupil spending. And since 2009, we've never got an increase in that yet. How Even though we've never got an increase in our revenue, every year we're expected to give all of our staff and employees raises with less revenue than we had the year before. So unfortunately, what we've done is we've dipped into our savings, right? We've dipped into our, our fund balance. Um, and then we got to a point where that was so low we were hitting crucial measures and the state was looking at taking us over. And the last year and a half, we've worked very hard to move away from that. We've had to make some really hard decisions and to show that we're financially responsible. And the people on the board, we ask really hard questions. We go every, over every agenda item. So I just want to convey to the voters that this board and our superintendent is committed to financial, um, you know, making strong financial decisions and that we wouldn't be coming and asking for this millage if we didn't need it. Now, if we don't get it, will we survive? Yes, we will be okay. And I think the Tampa Tribune highlighted that. However, why not make sure that we can give our teachers and our school and our children as much as we possibly can and set them up for success? So that's the last thing I have to say about the millage. Our guest is Jessica Vaughn, a Hillsborough County School Board member. You're listening to Tuesday Cafe on WMNF. I'm Sean Canan. It's 1024 in the morning, and you can email us at dj at wmnf.org or text 813-433-0885. You know, Jessica, you were talking about revenue and uh, how much is coming into the school board. One concern about revenue for public schools is that public school enrollment has been declining, especially since the pandemic. And what that essentially has the effect of doing is taking revenue away from the public schools and and sending it out to these private schools or these other options that that students and, and their parents are choosing. 
Absolutely. And here's the frustrating thing. Um, and, and there have been some things that we have lobbied legislation for that doesn't necessarily um, go around giving us more money. Sometimes we've just asked for more flexibility in our funding. But let's say that, you know, someone decides they want to try out a charter school and it sounds like a great fit for them. And they enroll their student in a charter school at the beginning of the year. And we do the 10 day count where basically we count where all the students are. So the school can say, okay, this is how much funding we're going to give you. This is how much enrollment you have. If that charter school ends up not being a good fit, let's say the student is high needs, it has ESE needs, and that charter school can't meet those needs because traditionally they don't have so as much support for our ESE students as our traditional public schools do. And they come back to us, the money doesn't follow back to us. So we have to provide all those services for those children, especially the ones that may require more special services for ESE without that funding because the state allows the charter schools to keep those funding until the next count we may not be till February or March. So that could be up to six months where we have children who the charter school wasn't a good fit and they come right back for us. So not only is it a challenge to keep kids enrolled in our traditional public schools, but often if parents find that traditional public school was a good fit and they send the children back, we still don't get the revenue for that. On a related note, an email from DeMarco is asking, he's going to, I'm going to read a quote from Marianne Williamson, and he's asking if you agree with it. The quote is, <laughs> USA is the only country that bases its educational funding on property taxes that ensures that poorer children will get a poorer education, thus perpetuating poverty. It's a way of a veiled aristocratic system keeps power to itself. It won't change until we change it. So that's a quote that DeMarco sent us attributed to Marianne Williamson. I mean, I do think that we need to find other ways. Um, you know, the property taxes don't go directly to the school. Again, they go to the state and they and they send that out and we decide, you know, equally each school gets some. And then there is Title I funding for schools that have uh, a certain amount of uh, free and reduced lunch where they get extra funding. However, no one's saying that we don't need to reevaluate our school funding in general. And it shouldn't just be equally. We should be providing a lot more to our schools where our students need a lot more support. So my suggestion is instead of dismantling traditional public education, we should be ad advocating for reform to make sure that we are properly investing in all of our students equally. Our guest is Jessica Vaughn, a Hillsborough County School Board member. And yet on Sunday, the Washington Post wrote an article that was um, very in-depth about Florida education. And uh, the headline read, Florida teachers race to remake lessons as DeSantis laws take effect. Let me read a, a sentence or two here. It says, Florida's culture war is being waged primarily in schools. The DeSantis administration has decried teachings on race suggested civics instruction that downplays the historical separation of church and state, told school districts to ignore advice from the federal government that guarantees yeah. civil rights protections for LGBTQ students, yeah. and on Wednesday asserted that children in elementary schools are being told they are the wrong gender. So that's just a sentence or two from a big Washington Post article on Sunday. Uh, what, are, what are your thoughts about those points and uh, Florida's education system being so um, under scrutiny in the national media? You know, uh, I'm kind of rubbing my, my face in frustration because, you know, so many of these divisive bills, number one, not only are they detrimental to the 
mental well-being of our students. Um, it's confusing for our teachers in our schools. These laws were intentionally wrote to be very vague. And when we've asked for more guidance from the Department of Education, we've gotten very little. And what that has done is kind of left it up to each district to make their own decisions. And a lot of districts, because they don't know exactly what they should be doing, are erring on the side of caution. And they're being very extreme in their curriculum, wiping out inclusivity, making sure that classrooms can't have any, you know, any stickers that say anything that, you know, might be taken as political. Um, you know, teachers are afraid to talk about Black history or what that means, and they're revamping their curriculum. And it's created this fear because there's not a lot of guidance around it. Um, it's also created a mistrust when it comes to parents trusting teachers and curriculums. You know, our curriculum is very transparent. We send things home at the beginning of the year. If there are things teach or parents are uncomfortable, they can always opt out. That's always been the way. Parents have always had the rights when it comes to education. And actually, most of the time, educators wish parents would be more engaged in their children's academic career. Um, unfortunately, what has happened is because they have these divisive bills that people get very upset about and that have created chaos and confusion, the other bills that are coming out, the ones we're talking about that increase vouchers or talk about taking the power of, you know, actually approving charter schools out of local school boards who know our community and whether we need a school or our charter school back and put it back in the hands of legislation, all the attention is off these other legislative bills that are coming out to destroy traditional public education. And instead, we're, you know, we're talking about vague bills that are just creating chaos in our schools and actually harming the, the students who are in it. Because if you look at a lot of these bills, and I go to forums and I speak to middle schoolers and high schoolers, even the more conservative ones aren't in favor of this. They don't want classrooms where they can't talk about black history or they can't talk about LGBTQ or they can't make the students in their classroom feel included. So they're really harmful bills that are dividing us. They're vague, they're causing chaos and they're distracting us from what's really happening. You were referring to the confusion about the new laws and I, I read some anecdotes in Florida about where there were teachers who were seeking guidance about if they're in same-sex relationships, whether they could bring a photo that shows them and their partner to and put it on their desk at school, uh, you know, kind of silly things that we maybe teachers never had to think about in the past. Absolutely. Um, my son's um, teacher is LGBTQ. Her son is in my son's class, you know, and she says, what happens when he wants to talk about his family? I mean, the fact that people can't even talk about their family dynamic is so mentally harmful to our students and confusing that, you know, it, it's really sad. And it goes along with kind of this book banning, you know, and again, all this kind of mistrust intentionally created between parents to what to, to to create a wedge and our educators. Our guest is Jessica Vaughn, a Hillsborough County School Board member. I'm gonna continue reading from this Washington Post article, another sentence or two talking about sex education. It says that the article says, Florida is not a state that's doing a top notch job in terms of sex education as it is. That's according to uh, Ellen Daly, who is a professor and associate dean at the University of South Florida, who specializes in women's health and sexual education. She goes on to say, parents are generally positive about it, but now we're seeing the system kind of going back in time to when these things were controversial. And she concludes, that's really scary. So is this, uh, is our is Florida's new laws taking our education back in time? 
Absolutely. And I, I can't imagine what's going to come out of this next legislative um, session. I expect that they're going to take bargaining rights away from unions. They're going to um, tie teacher uh, salaries to performance measures. Um, I do intend, expect that there'll be more book banning and issues with sex education. Um, you know, if we're going to go back to a nation where we don't provide reproductive health care for women, we have to make sure that we are t educating our students to make good choices, right? You can't take away reproductive rights, take away sex education, take away access to contraceptives and expect that, you know, unwanted pregnancies are going to magically disappear. You know, we have to make sure that we're educating our students to be safe and make good decisions when it comes to these things, especially if we're limiting access to reproductive rights. Um, and I know you touched on earlier, you know, um, education or Commissioner Manny Diaz and the letter that he sent, I actually personally got the letter where essentially he was saying we weren't going to follow mandates, the law from, um, you know, the, the federal law um, giving students um, civil rights when it comes to LGBTQ uh, rights and, and bathroom decisions. And he absolutely said we were going to push back against that and not follow that, which is really confusing because the state wants to penalize local municipalities when we put in mask mandates and didn't go against state law. We went against a uh, surgeon general warning. They were willing to take millions of dollars out of our budget because apparently what they say we're supposed to follow, yet they don't want to follow federal law. And to me, that's very confusing. Either let local communities make their decision, whether it's state or when it comes to communities as county, or say that you know national law is the law of the land. Um, so so I anticipate there'll be lots of lawsuits and discussion about that, but it's just more hypocrisy um, in regards to either you can make your own decisions for your state and your community or laws are laws. You're listening to WMNF's Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan. Our guest is Hillsborough County School Board member Jessica Vaughn. Here's another important topic that the Washington Post brought up in the, it, their article on, Saturday, on Sunday about Florida's education. It says Florida is already facing a dire teacher shortage with 9,000 open teaching and staff positions unfilled as the new, new school year begins. And Florida Education Association President Andy Spar said that. He said the shortage is severe enough that DeSantis recently signed a law that allows military veterans to teach without the required certificate or a four-year college degree. So Jessica, how bad is the teacher shortage in Florida, specifically in Hillsborough County, and what are some of the solutions to it? The, the teacher shortage is real. It's, it's bad. I mean, first of all, it's bad across the country, okay? This talks about Florida, but it's a, it's a nationwide crisis. Is it bad in Florida and specifically our county? Yes. And honestly, when you talk to the people at the district, this is what's keeping everybody up at night, making sure that we have enough staff. Again, when you intentionally destroy public education and you create chaos and division and mistrust, teachers are going to get burnt out and they're going to leave for other professions where they're paying them more, which goes back to the millage and funding our education and where they feel valued and supported. Um, you know, I'm very concerned about this opening it up to the military because we do have a lot of professionals who have gotten college degrees and maybe their degrees or the tests that they've taken haven't given them access to teach what they want to. And they've been kind of locked out of that system, even though they're qualified, they have so many qualifications. And here we're just waiving those qualifications for somebody who might have been in the military 20 or 30 years ago, who doesn't have the training that it takes. I mean, teaching 
how to read and how to critically think and how to process is a skill-based it takes a long time. It took me, you know, two and a half years. I have a degree in elementary education to teach those skills. So we're going to be putting unqualified, you know, people who've been in the military into classrooms without classroom management skills. And on top of that, I made a point yesterday, you know, we have school shooter drills, right? That are very traumatic for teachers, for subs, for the students. What happens if you have a combat vet who has PSTD, you know, 18% of combat uh, vets have that, who gets triggered by a school shooting? I mean, all of this is not thought out well. It's not safe. It's not in the best interest of our children. And I don't understand why these decisions are being made. If we wanted to change, you know, and make it easier to get people, there's a million certifications or tests we could have change for people who already have those degrees or are interested in education to bring them into the workforce. To me, this feels like we're just trying to militize um, education in you know, its plan to destroy it. It's not just teacher shortages that are a problem. There's also a huge shortage of bus drivers. Yes. I'm reading about a crossing guard shortage. Uh, again, um, these are things that it's it's not like we have all summer to solve them. It, the, the school year is starting very quickly, very soon from now. So what can you tell us about the bus driver shortage for specifically? Well, we've been very aggressive in raising pay. I think we're one of the highest paid and we, we did something over the summer where we raised pay. We're one of the counties that pay the highest. So we're definitely trying to recruit people, you know, financially. We've done a million job fairs. We've gone out into the community more than we ever have. And I've been very impressed with what we've been able to hire. When it comes to other shortages and education shortages, the superintendent put in a mandate that anyone at the district that has qualified uh, qualifications to go back in the classroom, go back into the classroom for the first um, couple of weeks. So we're using all the personnel that we can to get back into the classroom, um, you know. But again, this is a nationwide issue. And after the pandemic, when you had a real opportunity to value education and reform it, the fact that we just went back to business as usual, that means we're undervaluing educators. And in many, many states, there's a conscious um, intention to destroy traditional public education. This is what happens. Jessica, Doug in Clearwater asks, how do I get a job as a teacher? I'm a CPA. Is there, a, if, if someone's interested in, in becoming a teacher, do they contact their local school district? Yes, you can go to Hillsborough County School Board. We have um, a whole program for um, applications. A lot of people that have, you know, can... Uh, Degrees that aren't necessary based in education can teach higher level college courses by um, passing some exams that would show that they're able to, to do that. And also we have pathways for certificates. So absolutely, you can go to our website. You can actually contact me. My, my email is jessica, J-E-S-S-I-C-A dot Vaughn, V is in Victor, A-U-V-A-U-G-H-N, COVID brain, at um, or dot um, H- cps.net. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I've got COVID brain. Yeah. So, um, you know, we, we talked a little bit earlier, Jessica, about the, um, the rules that have been handed down by the state to and, and the federal government. Recently, there was a school in East Tampa, a, a, a Pub, uh, sorry, a charter school or a private, some sort of private school that gets Title IX num money that said that it was not going to be able to give its students school lunches 
because it wasn't going to be able to comply with the Title IX requirements out of the federal government because there are anti-discrimination policies. And this school was, uh, was saying that that was one of the consequences that it was going to have to cancel or, or not give these students these school lunches because it wasn't able to comply with the federal anti-discrimination policies. Your thoughts on that? Well, honestly, that's the first I've heard of that. So I'd have to get more understanding of what that looks like. But, um, you know, one of the things that as a school board we've asked for is more oversight when it comes to charter schools, right? As traditional public schools, we have a huge amount of oversight to make sure that we are serving all our students um, equally, that we're meeting the needs, that we're, um, you know, making sure that we're following ideas, laws to support our ESE or disabled students. Charter schools do not have these same regulations. And as much as we've asked for that every year, they've minimized the regulations, our ability to go in and do oversights into these charter schools to make sure that they're providing what they need to. A lot of charter schools don't even have a cafeteria. They hire someone out to bring box lunches in, you know, for the students. Many of them don't have libraries, you know, they're run out of, you know, strip malls <laughs> um, and they can't offer the same kind of that they're not you know held to the same standards when it comes to building materials right they don't have to be hurricane proof they don't have to be shelters in time of need um, and, and often if they close right they're not successful it doesn't matter because the property that they were able to get for almost free whoever paid for it the companies that bought it get the land and so it doesn't really matter to them if the charter schools are successful so again the problem is, is once you start to privatize any industry, right, it becomes about profit. And what happens when you're focusing on profit? The quality goes down so you can maximize profits. And that's the concern. Also, if you have different types of charter schools that can deny students based on hair texture or, you know, whatever that they want, if it's a religious school and, and you don't subscribe to that religion, you're starting to create a bigger class divide, right? Because there's always going to be the parents who can navigate the charter school industry and be advocates for their students and get into the most sought after charter schools. And they're always going to be ones where, you know, unfortunately you're stuck in the charter school where it's at a strip mall and they don't have a cafeteria and they don't have a library. You know, all for the most part, all parents want is a place where they can send their kid locally, where they feel that they're safe and nurtured and get access to a good um, education. And if we would focus on doing that, we wouldn't need a hundred different charter schools. We could have some charter schools that were think tanks as places to try out alternative education and bring those back into our traditional public schools and work together. But privatizing education is only going to hurt us collectively as a community, as a country, as a state, and it's a bad idea. Our guest is Jessica Vaughn, a Hillsborough County School Board member. And we have a few more minutes left. Let me ask you about this, and I'm not sure from a legal standpoint if, you, if there's much you can mention about this, but I'll ask anyway. I'm reading that there's a gridlock in contract negotiations between Hillsborough County teachers and school board administrators. Do you know what the stumbling blocks are and where you think the contract negotiations will end up? Unfortunately, I can't speak about that because as school board members, we go into executive session to have these discussions and it's the one thing that's out of the sunshine and we're not able to talk about. I find that incredibly frustrating because I would love to be completely transparent. I will close and say this. Personally, as a school board member, I fight for and I support all teachers and staff having access to a livable wage that we absolutely must prioritize paying our teachers, not even what they're worth, 
and our staff members, but so that they can live in the county and pay their bills. They take care of our children. So I can express where I stand on a vague level, but unfortunately I can't talk about details. Let's see if we can squeeze in one more question before I let you go. Uh, I, I read an email today from Pinellas County Schools that announced that they will be the first public school district in Florida to install what they're calling the active law enforcement response technology known as ALERT. The ALERT platform allows law enforcement to respond faster and more efficiently during a campus emergency. ALERT offers real-time remote access to a school's cameras, door locking system, and public address system. So here's something that's going to be implemented in your neighboring school district. Any thoughts on what I just read? We already have something very similar to that. Um, we've been very lucky. Our Chief Newman has used the funds we got from the Stoneman Douglas Ask a long time ago to really secure our schools and be ahead when it comes to technology. Of course, any school is vulnerable, but I feel very confident in Hillsborough County, the work that's been done even before this last tragedy to make sure that our schools are as safe as we possibly can make them. I wanna, I wanna thank you so much for coming back on WMNS Tuesday Cafe, Jessica. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure and I'll come back anytime. Thank you. I hope you heal quickly. <laughs> Thanks. Take care. Thanks. Jessica Vaughn is a Hillsborough County School Board member and uh, she has been our guest so far. Right now we're going to turn to an interview that I did yesterday with St. Petersburg Mayor Ken Welch. We talked about what residents are looking for in the redevelopment of the historic gas plant district. That's the area where Tropicana Field is located. And we talked about his thoughts on whether the Tampa Bay Rays would stay in St. Pete. So here is my interview with Mayor Ken Welch. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining me on WMNF's Tuesday Cafe, Mayor Welch. Glad, glad to be with you. So just to remind people, uh, in June, you announced that you were launching a new request for proposal process so that you could identify prospective developers for the 86-acre gas plant district site. That's the home to Tropicana Field. So why was it that you uh, sent this out for people who missed that news? Why did you send out an RFP again? Well, the previous RFP um, had several respondents and uh, the previous administration had willed that down to to two, Midtown and Sugar Hill. Uh, and as a county commissioner, I participated in a lot of those uh, conversations and presentations, but a lot of that did happen during the pandemic. And so I think number one, community participation was limited uh, because of the pandemic. Uh, and our environment, I think has been impacted, whether it's um, the demand for office space, uh, certainly um, another important aspect to me and to the city council uh, last year during the campaign is that the Rays were not part of the conversation, not part of the dialogue. And so how could you really plan uh, for 86 acres when you really didn't have full community uh, opportunity to engage because of the pandemic and other factors, because of the change in our economics uh, due to the pandemic, it's a different world uh, post COVID uh, from supply chain to the off, um, demand for office space. So I thought it was important that we uh, start a new RFP, made sure it brought us certainty on the Rays uh, stadium component. You know, uh, the Rays, I feel, need to uh, decide, you know, if St. Petersburg is where they want to be. We've had real good conversations with them going forward. Re-engage the county, re-engage the city council on that aspect. And I also think we need to have a, a focus and priority, uh, even more so on equitable development going forward. In the interim, since the previous RFP was um, was uh, offered 
We've had a structural racism study completed that showed a pattern of structural racism in the city of St. Petersburg. We also had a disparity study that showed an underutilization of minority businesses systemically. And so I think those the, the, the outputs of those two studies need to be uh, embedded in this RFP to make sure we have equitable development so that the entire city benefits going forward from this generational project. And the structural racism part of that might have to do with the fact that this was a historically black community that when the Tropicana Field was built was essentially plowed under. What are some things that the city might be able to do to help to rectify that? Well, I think being intentional about making sure there's equity going forward. Um, read a story last night where USF is doing this with the new uh, USF Bull Stadium, uh, making a priority that uh, I think in that case, 20 percent of the construction opportunities go for minority businesses. I think we have to have that kind of intentionality going forward. And, and I grew up in the gas plant and my grandfather's business was one of those businesses that was impacted, not by the pursuit of baseball, but prior to that, the first dislocation was when the interstate came through and disrupted not only uh, the gas plant community, but the deuces uh, on 22nd Street. And so the pursuit of baseball is really the second disruption, uh, a, a far more complete disruption because the entire community was was uprooted and dis dislocated. But that was a functional community with almost a thousand residents, businesses, um, and we need a tangible and sustainable way uh, to pay tribute to that and to have an economic impact to support minority businesses throughout the city. Since you mentioned the interstate adjacent to the Tropicana Field site, the gas plant district is I-175. It's just maybe a mile or two stretch that connects I-275 to downtown. There have been people who have suggested that one day that might be the, the uh, interstate might go away and that might, might just be made part of the community. Is that on the table in this development plan? Look, we're open to all options and open to the discussion, but I think we need to be clear-eyed about what community we're restoring our connection to and, you know, what the real purpose for any uh, restructuring of, of I-175 would be for. The entire gas plant community was uprooted and dislocated to the west and south. So those folks aren't there anymore. There's no reconnecting to them just by taking down I-175. They moved west, south, and in some cases out of the city completely. But you can build programs that support young people, that support businesses wherever they went to. And I think that uh, kind of connection makes sense. The physical connection to Campbell Park to the south, for example, there's Campbell Park School and there's also uh, the park there. And, and beyond that to the south is the Campbell Park neighborhood, which is a neighborhood that has changed um, radically uh, since the days of, of the gas plant. And so re restoring that grid system, I get that. But let's understand it's not reaching the folks who were originally impacted by the gas plant dislocation. Our guest is St. Petersburg Mayor Ken Welch, and you're listening to WMNF's Tuesday Cafe. We're talking about the request for proposals for the redevelopment of the historic gas plant district, which is an 86 acre site, home of Tropicana Field. And Mayor, recently you've been having uh, community conversations that last Thursday you hosted the third one to get input about the priorities from the community about the redevelopment here. What are some of the themes that are emerging through these community conversations? Well, the, theme, the, the main theme is equi equitable redevelopment of the historic gas plant district. 
and it was great to see the commonality of that, whether it was um, with the downtown partnership uh, luncheon or whether it was at the Foundation for Healthy St. Pete or USF or St. Pete College, that theme it seems to carry the day. And within that, you hear uh, about, you know, affordable housing, about youth opportunities, about connections with education, uh, certainly about equitable economic development opportunities for businesses as we uh, go through this probably more than 10 year process to redevelop uh, Tropicana Field. So we've had almost a thousand uh, touches with folks showing up in person or virtually. Uh, and that's exactly the kind of feedback we wanted to get going into this process. And there's a natural body of water that flows through this site, the Booker Creek. One of the um, priorities that people have mentioned is to integrate Booker Creek into the design of whatever comes in the, in the place of what's there now and yes. use it to activate surrounding neighborhoods. Heard that a lot, activating Booker Creek. I, I think, it, like you said, it's a natural um, amenity to build on and to integrate. We heard a lot. I remember uh, Ms. Betzer uh, at the third community conversation mentioned integrating that green space throughout the project, uh, kind of like the, the waterfront parks uh, flow all the way down. Uh, and uh, I think that is what makes St. Pete special. Uh, it's what that access to our green spaces and waterfront, particularly downtown, is unique. And we need to incorporate that in, in the gas plan district redevelopment as well. When the redevelopment plan is picked, whoever you decide to go with, will there be things in place to to help to to guarantee that local people will be hired to do the jobs that are created? It is a priority. Uh, we don't want to have that kind of investment and have folks bring in uh, workers from, from elsewhere. And so having those trades involved, apprenticeships involved, subcontracting, and, and, and not just requiring it, but finding ways to remove barriers uh, so that those local businesses can uh, be involved and benefit as well. This coming on the heels of our disparity study, uh, I think the timing uh, is providential. Part of the issue with disparity is access and taking down barriers to to uh, folks doing business with the city. And so that that is already the work that we're going to be involved with uh, with the response to the disparity study already. One of the criticisms of the region in general, you know, all of Tampa Bay and most of Florida, in fact, is that there's no real mass transit uh, available. So um, is there any chance that the redevelopment of this site where the Tropicana field is now could spur some sort of regional transit initiative? Uh, and I'm not talking just about buses. I mean, could there be a light rail hub at, at this site? Is that anything that, that could be in the works? Well, certainly initially there will, will be a BRT stop, Bus Rapid Transit, which is really the first premium transit uh, project in Tampa Bay uh, that's received both federal and state and local support. Uh, that's being constructed as we speak. Folks see the red lanes on the First Avenues that'll go from downtown St. Pete all the way out to the beaches and back and eventually uh, connect to Tampa over the new Howard Franklin uh, in their managed lane concept. So we're seeing the seas to premium transit to to what I call, you know, just urban transit that that you'd expect in any major city. We're finally getting that in St. Petersburg, and I'm hopeful that Tampa will be next. But we've got to have those those regional connections as well. Another concern, really, for the whole region and the whole state is affordable housing. Presumably, whatever gets built on this site, there will be 
housing for people? What kind of guarantees are you putting in place to make sure that it's not just luxury housing for the, the richest people, that there's some workforce housing and, and affordable housing? No, we, we sent a strong signal that affordable and workforce has to be a part of this. Uh, and in fact, not only uh, on-site, but we want to know how you can support off-site uh, affordable and workforce housing as well. Um, and when I came into office, I asked both of the remaining master developer teams 15 additional questions. And one of those questions was, uh, given the current environment and the spike in, in home prices and rental, you know, how could you change a response? And uh, Sugar Hill, for example, had a, a um, multifaceted response to increasing affordable and, and rental uh, housing, uh, affordable and home ownership housing at the site, I think more than 5,000 units. And so if folks know that's a priority, I think they can be very creative in addressing that need. And we're stating without uh, any qualification that is uh, a requirement for this site. I'll end with the big question about the raise. You mentioned the raise earlier. You mentioned that you've been having conversations. What are the chances that after 2027, the raise will still be playing on presumably on a new MLB stadium in, at this site? You know, I think the chances are good. I think they're better than they were uh, certainly before we came into office because the conversation is happening with the raise. You know, we ultimately like it, might get to a number that's too big for the city. We won't pay any price. Um, but I think the the spirit of collaboration uh, is fantastic at where, where it needs to be. We're getting down to, to real numbers and real needs. And we'll find out if we can, we'll be able to come to an agreement. But we're working with the county, uh, and the county has been a major funder for the current Tropicana field through the bed tax. We'll make that same kind of ask uh, for the new uh, raised uh, home. And we're, it's a good place to be in, and I'm fairly confident that uh, we'll work something out. Is there anything else that people should know about the potential redevelopment of this gas plant district? Yeah, this is not a stadium redevelopment. It is a redevelopment of a community asset, the historic gas plant district. Uh, we welcome folks to weigh in on this. We want to thank everyone, the thousand folks who've weighed in uh, through the community conversation so far. Uh, and we're confident we're going to build uh, the best uh, community project for our city going forward. Uh, for generations to come. And it's about us all moving forward together. Well, thank you very much for joining us on WMNF's Tuesday Cafe, Mayor Welch. My pleasure, son. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. That was, that was St. Petersburg Mayor Ken Welch. We spoke yesterday. If you missed any of this interview, you can watch it on our website, WMNF.org. I want to thank John Dunn, DT, Fitz, and Greg Bowers for their help engineering the show today. And I want to thank my guests, Hillsborough School Board member Jessica Vaughn and St. Pete Mayor Ken Welch. You've been listening to Tuesday Cafe with Sean Canan. If you like the programming on 88.5 FM, please consider making a donation at WMNF.org. In this time slot tomorrow, Shelley will host Midpoint and talk about mental health issues among youth. Next up is Wavemakers with Janet and Tom Sherberger. Their guests will be Axios Tampa Bay reporters Ben Montgomery and Celine St. Felice. That's coming up next after NPR headlines. You're listening to WMNF Tampa, St. Petersburg, Sarasota, and Lakeland. Thanks so much for listening to Community Radio.